Thanks for tuning in. During this episode of Things I Wish I'd Known, we discuss the subject of shame. As part of this, we're discussing alcoholism and the subject of sexual assault. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. Hi, my name is Rachel and I am the host of Things I Wish I'd Known. I decided to set up this podcast because A, I love talking, I love learning from people, I love conversation and B, there are so, so many things I wish I'd known in my past, so many things I wish I'd known about my mental health, about self-care about magic, mystery, spirituality, about so many things that I know now, these crazy new breakthroughs in science, frequency, sound, all kinds of things that I'm now so passionate about that I wish I'd known. And I'm hoping that by sharing these conversations with you, I'm going to be able to maybe relieve some suffering, maybe share some laughs and share some knowledge Some of it you may think is amazing, some of it won't resonate, and that's okay. But I really, really want to get this knowledge out there. So I hope you enjoy listening to things I wish I'd known. Hi, and welcome to Things I Wish I'd Known with your host, Rachel, the founder of Welford Wellbeing. Today I am with Mandy Manners and I know I say this every week but I'm really excited to be talking to her. I realise everyone I listen to I'm like god you're excited to speak to everyone but I really am and this is the one reason I really wanted to set this podcast up because today we're going to be talking about the subject of shame and this is a huge 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 subject. I mean there's no way we're going to be able to unpack it all in 30, 40, 50 minutes. I mean, who knows how long it's going to be. I love chatting. But Mandy is a writer. She is a coach. She is the community and podcast host at Love Sober. And she's one of the reasons I think we get on so well is she's such a passionate advocate of alcohol-free living in order to support mental well-being. And she's all about empowering people to really thrive, not just survive in their lives. And I really, really resonate with that story. On top of that, she's a mum of two, and she's joined us today all the way from France, where she's lived for 13 years. So even though she is a British chick, comes from a similar party rave background as me, she's uh, been living overseas for the last 13 years. So welcome, Mandy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm excited. Nervous, but excited. I know. It's weird, because normally I'm the host, so I'm like, oh, this is like... Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm the one in control now, lady. Yeah. <laughs> but it's and it is it's nerve wracking, right? It's you know as much as people listening might think, you know, I often think that that I come across really confident online, and I am confident in a lot of areas in my life. I feel like I'm I've done a lot of the work, but also it's nerve wracking opening yourself up. It's hard being vulnerable about certain subjects, and shame's a really insidious situation to be in a very insidious emotion and it's got many layers to it so yeah it's right to be a bit nervous but we're doing it girl (laughs) we're doing it yeah but it's important and I wouldn't you know I I think it's I really wholeheartedly believe that everyone has a story to tell and everyone has something to bring and you know if I can 
sort of bring my story, even if sometimes it's difficult, if that can help someone or resonate with someone, then, you know, and also we'll go on to talk about shame, but it's probably the best thing that you can do to sort of move away from shame is just to be honest and, and speak your truth. So completely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on that point. Mm. I mean, do you want to start by just kind of introducing, if people don't know what Love Sober is, if people don't know, you know, like, how did you get into doing what you do now? Yeah, okay. So Love Sober is kind of a multifaceted support system for women who want to live alcohol free. I run it with my sort of co-host of the podcast, Kate. She's also a coach. We sort of independently were blogging on a site called Soberistas, which is an amazing site for sobriety. And she's a brilliant writer and I used to kind of follow her writing. And then I did a year sober in 2012, 2013. So I'd had very bad kind of mental health problems. I'd had a nervous breakdown. I'd been in burnout from work and my drinking had got pretty heavy and kind of out of control it was heading down a very dark path and so I got help with my depression I was really really lucky that in France we're really well supported and so I started doing CBT and got really much better sort of dealt with a lot of things and then realized that alcohol just was part of the picture that needed to be looked at so mm. I stopped for a year and then I was much better and I was like well I'm, I'm fixed like and I even you know I'd been on antidepressants I came off my antidepressants and I was like okay you know like this is great and I live in France and you know I actually really love red wine and it's part of sort of the oh, established okay. relationship yeah. with my husband and so I'm just going to drink every now and again and so I got stuck in that kind of moderation trap for about two years and finally eventually luckily I stopped again and was just like you know what like I'm done I'm really done and I knew that I kind of needed to be accountable and actually make friends and make it my life not just you know something I was not doing but really start adding in things so I started sort of doing my Instagram and then I connected with Kate and I was like you know what I really like the way you write about things and she's very much about positivity and about sort of you know putting in treats and you know really sort of enjoying life as a sober person so I was like do you want to do a podcast and she was like yeah we didn't have a clue how to do anyway (laughs) um and so that's how it started and then from there we started a community so it's called love sober life so it's away from Facebook and any other social media it's really a space where people can come and join we do monthly webinars we do weekly meetings online so quite often we're sat in our PJs having a cup of tea but just that connection with other women really helps to kind of yeah make life sober not so lonely and just talk about all the good stuff and That's what I, you know, I'm an advocate for alcohol-free living for everyone. You know, yes, I had some issues with addiction and that's certainly an area of shame. Yeah. And I sort of go through my shame story in a moment, but there's lots of reasons why drinking doesn't serve people. And it could be if you've got mental health issues, if you've had trauma, if you don't like it, you know, it's like you don't have to like... I really just want people to have the permission to stop drinking and ask themselves the question like, you know, does this feel good? Like, do I want to carry on and not just carry on because it's the socially acceptable social norm, you know? Mm. 
And so that's kind of what we tried to advocate is just, you know, and not just to be stuck feeling like you're missing out to really sort of build a life you love sober. So Yeah, I think do. that's really important as well. I'd just like to touch on the point, like when you're talking about the moderation trap, because mm. I'm not really familiar with that terminology. So there might be other people listening as well who aren't quite aware of what that is. Your story also really mirrors mine. Mm. I got sober for about a year and a half because I thought there's no point drinking something that's a known depressant if you've got depression and you're trying to heal from depression that's crazy and obviously when you're on certain types of medication which I was for my mental health it recommends not to take alcohol with with the medications and similar thing got sober got all these spiritual practices in place like was really really doing a hell of a lot of mindset work a lot of different healing types of work thought I'd nailed it got off my meds and that was mm. by the way if you're listening to this I'm not advocating I know both of us have said getting off my, our medication if you're going to do that and you're listening to this please do it with support it is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do so just as a side note but I did the same thing I was like yeah nailed it I've beat this whole thing and and like maybe I didn't even have depression anxiety maybe I was just having a hard time in a period of my life <laughs> and then went back to all my old habits and was like oh my god <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh my God, no, you definitely do have it. <laughs> this, is, this does not help. So Yeah, yeah I mean, no, I, I'll, set, I'll add to that that, you know, I take antidepressants again now and I'm, you know, I, yeah, I've, since I've gone sober again, I've reduced by half with my doctor. But I'm, you know, if I have to stay on medication for the rest of my life, I'm totally okay with that. And I, I really, you know, I, I want people to not, feel like it's something you have to get over you know if it's something yeah. that helps you and keeps you my doctor always explained it you know that it's like if you're crossing a bridge you know and it's unsteady that's just lengthening the bridge so you don't fall down the hole mm. essentially you know it's just sort of it's not going to save you but it, it's just helping you get across I don't know. I, li- I really like that analogy you know because yeah. I'm not I'm not anti-medication I've got friends of mine who've got mental health problems who you know absolutely swear by it and it really works for them it didn't work for me I felt really Mm. odd on it and I couldn't quite I don't know whether that's I didn't get the right mix or maybe it wasn't for me whatever I think it's a very very personal choice and I think um, there's often a lot of shame around medication you know in terms of if you are taking it or aren't taking it or should be on it or shouldn't be on it and all that kind of stuff and I think you know open that conversation too and allow the yeah, shame and from that to be released because yeah, there is no I mean, shame in, in using it at all. Yeah, 100%. You know, I ha- I did kind of come across that with uh, a couple of friends, you know, that were very anti sort of medication and even, you know, at a more practical level, you know, I'm a mum of two, like I don't have time to sort of allow myself to go that low or to have those mm. dips, you know, because I'm, I'm in a position where I'm looking after other people. So it's, you know, it's kind of in a way a means to an end. And also like, I, yeah, I'm okay with it. Like I just, mm. I am okay with it. But at the same time, if, I mean, you just got to do what's right for you. I mean, we're, I'm very, very passionate about individual paths of recovery and, you know, yeah. a patchwork approach and just putting in whatever works for you. Yeah. Um, so yeah I mean 100% just to go back to the moderation trap um, the kind of established language within sobriety is you know always was that if you're looking at kind of going into the rooms you know and sitting there and saying you know my name's Mandy and I'm an alcoholic Mm. um, 
that wasn't something that I felt I could attach myself to. Mm. It felt very disempowering and it felt very, I'm not religious. So that was very difficult for me to, to enter into that. So I had to find my own way. And again, no judgment on people that do go to 12 step programs, you know, no. whatever works for you. Um, exactly. But for me, you know, it wasn't something that lit me up or fit with my values. Mm. The problem is, is if you go into a doctor's office very often, you know, the first question you'll be asked is how much, you know, how many units are you drinking? And you'll be asked to reduce your units, you know. Mm. So, and that's what you talk about moderation. It's like, well, you know, if you just drink less, moderate, just drink less. Mm. And I think there's a lot of people that are kind of in this gray area where it's like, okay, I don't associate myself with an alcoholic. Like, you know, I, I know people that have had heavy addictions to alcohol. Mm. So I had that kind of mirror and I was like, well, I'm not, that's not me, but it's not making me feel good. And Mm. there was no sort of permission to stop. All there was permission was just like, just keep it in your life, keep it in your life, but just cut down. And so for someone that's kind of in the middle where there is some level of addiction, but I'm not dependent and I'm not, you know, pouring vodka on my breakfast, like, Mm. It was like, okay, so what I've got to do is I've got to just drink it, but just sort of not too much. And it becomes Mm. massively obsessive. So it's like, okay, right, you know, how much do I drink? Right, I'm going to keep a diary, right? You know, so, and that builds a lot of shame because you're letting yourself down. It's like, oh, like Mm. I didn't do what I said I'd do, but I should be able to, you know, I should be able to moderate because that's what a normal person does. A normal person moderates alcohol. And because I don't associate with being an alcoholic, then I must be able to keep alcohol in my life. And the only time I was free was when I was just like, you know what, like I'm done. Mm. And I, I don't know how much, you know. I mean, it'd be interesting to know your opinion. I don't know how much I agree either with the, unless you're drinking in the morning, you're not an alcoholic because yeah. I think if you're, and again, this is my personal opinion. So, you know, and I'm new to sobriety. So if I'm offending anyone, I apologize. But I do think that, <laughs> If you're drinking every evening, that can also be problematic. And if you're drinking because you don't want to feel your emotions, and if you're drinking because you can't socialize without alcohol, or if you're drinking because, you know, that's the only way that you can be sexual or have the confidence to to have sex, or if you're, you know, all those things are, are problematic. And I think there's lots of layers to alcoholism in terms of you know, in my experience, I could totally have a healthy, in inverted commas, relationship with alcohol in terms of, you know, it never got in the way of my work. It never, you know, I didn't used to get hangovers until I was, I don't know, 30 or something or 27 or something like that. (laughs) Really got away with it for a long time. I think that was dissociation (laughs) from my body, but whatever. It was great. And, but, you know, what I started noticing through meditation and more self-reflective practice was when I drank, and even if it was just say a glass of wine or two, so very moderate, you know, me and a friend maybe having two glasses of wine of an evening to catch up, my mental health would dip so dramatically for about Mm. two weeks afterwards that it just wasn't worth it. But somebody looking at, at that on paper would say, well, you're only having... I don't know how many units that would be. What is it like four units a week? That's not a problem. But it was a problem for me because it made me feel horrendous and it made my mental health almost unmanageable. 
So I yeah, think exactly. It's... So I think that's the that's the point. I think is that you know what happens is there's sort of the general view, which is you know I had this with my doctor. I know so many people that you go in and you go, I'm not sure about me mm. and alcohol, and they go, How much are you drinking? And you go and they go, ah, you know, yeah. Just, just cut out the vodka, just stick to wine. Yeah, just, 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 cut, just cut down. And it's never like, oh, well, you know, really, well, you can stop. I mean, you don't have to drink. Like, your life will continue and you can be happy. Like, don't worry about it. You know, it's, the whole, it's, it's always like, just drink less. Yeah. And, um, and going back to this kind of, I mean, the language of uh, sobriety is a, is big topic and there are lots of different sort of schools of thought about the language of alcoholic alcoholism Mm. and addiction and addict and I think it's very personal and I think everyone again should choose the language that suits them but in terms of looking at you know what what scientifically medically you talk about alcohol use disorder Mm. so alcoholism is actually a very old sort of term so you look at alcohol use disorder so you have harmful drinking which is kind of I'm not going to get this exactly right but drinking above the recommended amount but not not having any sort of impact on your day-to-day life and then you Mm. have hazardous drinking I think it's the other way around actually so hazardous is first then harmful drinking which is you're drinking over the recommended amount and it's starting to have an impact so binge drinking anxiety hangovers blackouts etc and then you have dependence Mm. where you will need medical intervention to stop because you know if you have a dependence on alcohol and you quit just like that you know you could die from a seizure so yeah there is that sort of there is a gradient scale of addiction and so for me I I didn't feel like I was dependent on alcohol like I stopped without any kind of outside help but it certainly wasn't I wasn't you know a glass of wine at a wedding and not think about it for three months you know yeah I was somewhere in the middle and yeah and it was it was affecting my my confidence my self-esteem my relationships with people so it was definitely you know enough to stop for sure yeah so I guess I'd like to know and I think people listening would like to know as well I mean one thing we we said we were going to touch on anyway is kind of the relationship between alcohol and shame Mm. but I'd really like to know like what is shame for you like how would you define that because I think for a lot of people it's quite, no one really talks about shame. It's very much under the carpet, right, as an emotion. Mm. And like a lot of them, I mean, in British culture anyway, we don't really talk about our feelings. It's very stiff upper lip, isn't it? And just get on with yeah. it. But how would you define shame for you? Well, I was sort of thinking about, I think shame for me is probably one of the most damaging negative emotions. And I think it is is probably the thing that had the most impact on my relationship with myself I guess I describe shame as that comparison that you have with the societal norms and values the values you have with yourself and the values that society puts upon you and when you feel that there's a disconnect between you and those values Mm. it's like that feeling of being exiled and actually, you know, quite often it's we are exiling ourselves and it's that dis, that feeling of disconnect, like I'm doing something or the way that I am is not normal or not how it should be. Mm. And therefore you feel ashamed. 
And I think I felt shame my whole life. Mm. Certainly there's some significant periods of shame, but when I look back to being a kid, I never felt like I was good enough, pretty enough, slim enough. And I took all of that on myself, you know, and that transformed to shame. So I was ashamed mm. of my body. I was ashamed of the things I said to people. I was ashamed of the way that my teeth were, you know, I was ashamed of my clothes, my wealth, you know, it's mm. all those things when you're putting a bar and I think I was incredibly hard on myself. You know, I put up a bar of what I, my expectations were of my behavior and my place in society and so I constantly felt like I was letting myself down. And mm. so that sort of instilled that self-perpetuating feeling of, yeah, of not feeling good enough. And, mm. and that, you know, we had a massive impact on my self-esteem. And I think, you know, what's interesting, interesting is the wrong word, but, you know, what, what often happens with alcohol and drinking is it's kind of a self destructive cycle of shame you know because mm -hmm. even when I was a young person I was never a good drunk I mean it brought out all the things I didn't like about me you know I was really kind of leery and quite aggressive and you know yeah I was funny and stuff like that but everything was exaggerated and those feelings when you'd wake up in the morning and just be like oh my, you know what did I say and what did I do and I can't believe I did that you know and one of the brilliant things about being sober is like, you know, I never walk away from a situation and feel shame anymore. I just, you know, I'd, I'd never go. I mean, I had a conversation with my ex-boyfriend at a wedding. This is a classic example. And I'm really kind of quite a deep, honest person. And I felt a lot of shame about that in my life. Like, God, I should just let things go or just be sort of more chilled about stuff. And actually, he was really, really horrible to me. You know, we, were, we weren't together for very long. We were together when we were kind of 19, I guess. And actually, I, I felt pregnant, like just, and I had an abortion just when I started university. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of shame around that. And I, yeah. actually, this is probably the first time I've said that in a public space. And so he wasn't nice to me. And I had a lot of things to say. And so I bumped into him, you know, he split up with me over email, you know, and etc yeah as young people do and so I saw him at this wedding and I just sort of said I said my feelings I was just like you know what like th that really hurt and you know it wasn't nice and etc and I kind of walked away with that kind of panic of like oh you know I shouldn't have said that and then I was like you know what I'm sober like I totally chose to say that and mm. and it was so liberating it was just like no I, I own that you know yeah. I, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and be like I can't believe I said that or, or feel like my what I do is out of control. So that's been a brilliant kind of part of, of sobriety for me is that trust in myself and that kind of re-spiraling of self-esteem of like, actually, you know, I, I feel good about my choices. Um, mm. They're not out of line. I'm not disconnected from my values as a human being by the sort of the behavior that I'm displaying, I suppose. Um, I guess yeah. as well, just from what you've said, I mean, guilt and shame are quite interlinked, right, as, mm. as emotions go. And they say, as the famous they say, that guilt is I did something bad and shame is I am bad. Mm. So 
what would be interesting to know is what's your what's your view on that link between guilt and shame and how that relationship plays out because I imagine around subjects like termination or being really drunk or you know like you're saying oh I'd get drunk and then I wouldn't know what I'd said or you know those kind of things like I guess what I'm trying to get to in a roundabout way is how in my experience and what I believe is like shame is such a layered subject that it almost starts like if it is based around the belief I am bad it could start almost as soon as you're born right Mm. like you know if you've got I don't know anytime you're told off as a child you're going to internalize that and think it's your fault because that's just what human beings do like that's human nature in any kind of psychology that you read so if it's starting all the way back there how do we begin to hack that a our relationship with shame and Hmm. b what parts are ours to own and deal with what parts are ours to kind of give back to others if it's not our shame to hold and where does guilt kind of feed into that story yeah I mean it's not easy for sure to kind of unpack that stuff and I think you're absolutely right that guilt and shame are very interlinked you know guilt is really sort of is to do with an action you know something that Mm. I've I've done and and shame is something that I that embodies me you know Mm. I guess for me like the biggest thing has been just to know that I can't do anything about the past like what's happened's happened like mm. I just can't change it you know I could and I guess that comes from self-compassion you know I can't take back the times that I put my kids to bed pissed I can't do anything about that mm. you know I can't take back you know the things I feel guilty about I can't take back the relationship how I was with my parents because I cut them out of a massive part of my story for 20 years. You know, I can't take back that kind of how that affected them. There's nothing Mm. I can do about that. All I can do is start from this moment now and move forward in a healing spirit and move forward with compassion for myself and compassion for others. And something you said when we, we first met really resonated and gave me a lot of sort of peace of mind, I suppose, is you know, that everything can be healed, you know, mm. and you're a real believer of that. And 100%, that really, man. I, and that, that really, I feel like that's tattooed, like somehow, you know, like how you see sticks of rock. <laughs> like, I guess that's my seaside upbringing, but you know, like yeah. how you see sticks of rock and it's got that like word yeah. all the way through. Like, that's how I feel. I'm like, it can be healed. <laughs> it can, no, anything but, can. But that, I mean, that helped me a lot and that helps a lot with feelings of guilt because guilt is kind of what you've done to others essentially right Mm. so you know either I can stay stuck feeling guilty about you know when I was very unhappy and very mentally ill and my relationship with my daughter was kind of broken and you know I'll go into sort of reasons why and there's always reasons why but a lot of my fear and anger and sort of emotions were put upon her you know and Mm. um and I I can see that now she's 13 now and we have an amazing relationship but I think I have postnatal depression and there was also a lot of other things going on but anyway you know I see her now and I see that sometimes if I'm sort of 
angry, she looks frightened, and that's something that I have to own. But it doesn't mm. mean that I need to feel guilty about it. It means that I can be proactive and do something to mend it. Oh, um, completely. You know. I always think as well, like triggers are horrible, right? Like when you get triggered about something, whether you're tr- whether it's triggering fear or anger or shame or any negative emotion, it's never nice. But I think that there are biggest markers of knowing where healing can begin. Mm. Like if, you know, and I, I mean, I don't have children myself, but I can see from close people that I have relationships with and their children, just how much kids basically wind you up. And I think people's children wind them up because they're basically the biggest mirror <laughs> that mm. there could be of like, look what you this is you (laughs) you know because that's that's how they're you know being molded and so then that's like quite harsh reality of looking at self right and the same in in any relationship often people are just our mirrors or our teachers they're there to mirror something in us that maybe we need to look at that can be healed or they're a teacher and they've come to kind of show us you know a new way or show us something a different way of embracing something or a different way of doing something so that we can maybe see within ourselves that connection and that light that is within all of us. Yeah, I certainly feel like, you know, when I was, you know, I call it a place of disconnect. Like when I was drinking, that's how it felt. Like I was not connected to my values and not connected to essentially me and what Mm. makes me feel good about me. And now that I'm, connected you know I do really feel like my kids are teachers and I they're absolutely fascinating if you just let them kind of be them and it's not always easy you Mm. know but I've known like my son he's very sort of sensory aware and he doesn't like to wear pajamas he prefers to wrap in a blanket and it's like before I would have just been like you know put your pajamas on or whatever and now it's just like oh that's interesting all right let's see why why is that you know and me and and your son have a lot in common that's literally (laughs) how I sleep (laughs) I didn't realize other people did that (laughs) yeah well there we go and you know my daughter she's extremely headstrong and she's she's incredibly wise and it's been amazing to sort of step back and go oh you know what actually you you can teach me and that's only happened since I've I've stopped drinking, you know. Um, what a beautiful way to look at that relationship, though, as well. Yes, yeah, I mean, you know, they could still be challenging at times, but for yeah. sure, I mean, I went from a place of so much resentment for being a pet, you know, for not being able to... I just didn't know who I was anymore, you know. I, as you said in a, the intro, like, I grew up being sort of a festival girl, like, very much into sort of pre-parties and getting wasted and you know my friends and that was my life and you know I then became a parent and I knew deep down in me that like my values were not to be that sort of parent like I didn't Mm. want my kids to grow up kind of seeing that or being around people being wasted and on drugs and alcohol being at festivals it just I didn't want I wanted them to have the best chance that they could to be healthy and do sport and Mm. essentially not be like me and but I didn't know how to change I didn't know how to get out of that sort of cycle and that's all I'd Mm. ever known so 
Well, we human beings love a pattern, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm finding. Love a pattern, yeah. even if it's a damaging one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think a part of that is, you know, obviously I had a kind of a big part of my shame is around, you know, something that happened when I was 19. And I do think there is some, you know, if anyone's had major trauma, I do think there's part of me that kind of got stuck at that point. And so I didn't, I don't think I kind of progressed. I feel like I'm becoming an adult now that I've really worked through a lot of that trauma. Um, And I felt like I was kind of, yeah, I got stuck in that adolescent sort of. But I think trauma does that right. Like depending on how you've experienced your trauma and, and what that trauma is, obviously it's different for everybody, but you know, often people get frozen in trauma. If you're Mm. immobilized, if your options that your body took was freeze or flop, then, Mm. you know, really there is, when you start to work through that trauma, there is a defrosting process and there is kind of a lot of uncovering to happen within that. And if that process isn't done straight away, it will hang around. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I always feel like that. I'm like, you know what, ain't healing itself babe you know like Mm. sometimes I have a chat with my I have to have a chat with myself and I'm like you know that stuff ain't going to heal itself like unless you're doing the work and you're you know you're working to grow every day and become that happier healthier more balanced more connected version of self I guess even more Mm. as I don't know some people might say that more divine version of self or the more light version of self you know but it's not fun man like dealing with trauma is not fun and I, I don't blame people for wanting to put it off you know like no. actually sitting down and you know whether you're doing it through journaling whether you're doing it through I don't know psychedelic kind of stuff with ayahuasca or whatever all those kind of routes whether you're just in talk therapy not just in talk therapy but you know like whether you're mm. in talk therapy or however you're working through it I know both of us are advocates of EMDR um mm. for trauma but it's, you know, I never go, yay, I've got an EMDR session. <laughs> it's like, oh, God, what's going to get uncovered? What's I basically uncovered go in. Time? I go in every time and I'm like, I think I'm fine. Actually, I think I'm fine. I think I'll just leave it there. And she's like, you know, like it's a treatment and you're in treatment. And so it's a healing process. But if we, you can stop, you know, she's always like, you can stop, but it won't heal and I'm like yeah it's still there all right then I always think of it and I think alcohol kind of to me felt a bit like this as well as and the same with medication I you know I feel like this analogy works for all those situations Mm. it's like it's kind of like having a big cut on your arm or something and you're well aware that it's there but you put a plaster over it so you can't really see it and then you know it starts to you know, the wound starts to get bigger, like through, I don't know, it starts to rot or whatever. So you just keep getting a yeah. bigger plaster so you don't have to look at it. And as long as you, you know, eventually your whole arm's covered in plaster and it's like, at some point you've got to rip that plaster off and just look at what's happening there. In my opinion, it's, you know, I don't know, it's so freeing. Like, yeah, I can't, I've never felt as free as I do now that I've really started to work through all my old patterns, behaviours and crap. And I don't think I would have been able to do that if I was still drinking. Yeah, and I think that's why, you know, this conversation about shame is so important because for me, shame 
feels like one of those things that we don't want to look at but we Mm. can look at and we can move through and um Mm. you know so just to explain a little bit like I just just a sort of trigger warning that you know if anyone has been through any kind of sexual violence then perhaps this is the moment to go and make Make a cup cup of tea tea. or whatever (laughs) yeah just you know sort of protect I just wanted to put that out there I got attacked when I was 18 I was traveling in Mexico and I don't know whether I was drugged I think potentially I was I don't remember much of what happened I have kind of flashes it the memory is kind of like a nightmarish memory and when I first woke up in the morning I said to my friend I had this horrendous dream and actually now sort of going through sort of therapy I've been told that that's what's called you know disassociation which is Mm. you know when you're your body is going through extreme stress. Your brain kind of blacks out so you don't have a heart attack and yeah. the blood rushing through your system. So you do kind of black out. And I had physical marks, you know, that so then I was like, oh, my God, like something happened. You know, so the sort of memories that I remember is there being, you know, lots of, sort of three men in the room and, you know, getting attacked and held down. And, you know, I'll leave the details, you know, and getting sexually violated and I didn't tell anyone about this well the next day I was with my friend and I said to to her I don't ever want to speak about this again Mm. and she kept that bless her for about 18 years and I said I don't ever want to talk about it again and I didn't I didn't talk about it to anyone for 20 years I didn't tell my family I didn't tell obviously it came out with relationships so boyfriends kind of knew because of you know that was an indicator that something had happened yeah even though I kind of denied it but certainly you know my relationships with men were affected from that moment onwards but I carried so much shame do you feel like it affected all your relationships with men or is it just new relationships or did it affect the relationships that you had with men that were already in your life for example um I certainly that's an interesting one I've never really considered with other men I mean I certainly had a lot I still do have kind of hyper vigilance issues like I still Mm. get quite frightened I don't really like sort of standing next to men I don't really like men taking photos of me like there's little things like that that I just I can't work with men in a kind of intimate way like I mm. couldn't coach a man I don't think because I just don't sort of yeah I feel all right with gay men <laughs> but heterosexual men I yeah I don't I still kind of and that's definitely been something that you know my I've had to work through with partners that kind of anger mm. and that kind of you know over the top sort of feminism or yeah the anger at all men you know that's been quite present mm. I guess since that point onwards But, you know, I kind of, yeah, I mean, I just, until really, really recently, I didn't tell anyone. And because I was ashamed, and I still can't really put into words, you know, when you try to explain to someone, like, you know, it's hard for someone to understand that hasn't been through something like that. You know, like my best mate who was there, you know, I saw her recently and we were at this wed- another wedding and a couple of people must have read something online because they were like, you know, sort of said, oh, Mandy, you know, 
we're so proud of you and you're so brave and it broke me and I was so upset and frightened and my friend was like but why like what's what do you think is going to happen and it's like it's because they know they know and it's like so what and it's like but what will they think of me and it's like mm. Mandy bad thing, things happen to you and yeah so I'm still working through it it still comes up you know and do you not think I mean, though, I, because we live in a culture of victim blaming when it comes to sexual assault and I think it becomes a very very difficult thing to unpack when mm. you know the way culturally you know culturally and systemically how sexual assault is kind of put out there into the public domain it's always what were you wearing how much did you have to drink you know all these kind of questions about you know well if you are going to walk home late at night by yourself or whatever like all these kind of Mm. weird and wonderful constructs that have been put in place to kind of make it your fault and yeah I mean for sure I felt that yeah when a sexual assault happens, it's nobody's fault but the perpetrator. You know, mm. and I remember flipping it on someone once when we were having a conversation. I said, well, if I saw a really, really drunk guy in his pants in the street, would you, you know, would I, A, go over and offer him, like, maybe a bottle of water and, like, how are you getting home? Are you okay? Where are your friends? Or would I, B, start kissing him and, like, making out with him and touching him inappropriately I mean that just would never enter my consciousness it would just be like hey dude where's your pants like where's your friends (laughs) can we we look after you can we yeah can we can we get you somewhere to safety like are you good what's up with you and I just think you know we don't like if somebody's that inebriated or that whatever then you know the first port of call should always be care (laughs) And that's why yeah. I can never compute. It's like, how is that your fault then? But I don't know. It's yeah, just... and I do think, and that's the absolute rational response. And I do think, you know, but from speaking to women, and women really don't talk very much about this. And actually, when I sort of shared in Sobriety Forum, you know, I had all these women of all ages from sort of, you know, 75 down to 25 you know we had our own little me too thing within this Mm. kind of safe space and they were all different ages and all different experiences and all of them had never spoken out because of shame and because Mm. there is that thing that I created this situation you know and I do think that kind of led into my self-perpetuating kind of destructive drinking because there was that connection with being out of control and being inebriated that was like you know I put myself in danger and now I'm putting myself in danger again like how stupid mm. am I you know and it's like that kind of self flagellation is that the, the, the right word of just yeah, like yeah. you know beating myself up about it it was just like you did this to yourself and you've got no one else to blame and I mean it's a hugely kind of complex thing to live with shame you know, just I like, think you're so you know, brave Oh, (laughs) it was just, well, I mean, what happens essentially is a few friends that might listen to this will laugh, but when I went to LA, this it's a joke because I always mention going to LA, but when I went to LA to this conference, there's this amazing art installation called Shame Booth uh, Mm. run by this woman called Paula Williams. And I was at She Recovers, which was a big gathering for women in recovery. 
And the idea is it's like a confession booth, essentially. Like you go in and you speak your shame and you put down the phone and you you walk out and you get given your big girl pants. So she li- literally gives you some big pants that say <laughs> no shame on the back. And I was sat there in this space listening to all these women talk about, you know, sort of sexual abuse, talk about paedophilia, talk about these experiences they had, talk about, you know, rape and so drug abuse and all these incredibly brave women. And I was sat there and I was like, why can't I own? I can talk about my my drinking. I can talk about what I you know, what I do to myself, but why can't I own what someone did to me? Like, Mm. what the fuck is that about? And Mm. I sat there and I was just like, I've got something that I can add to this story, but I don't know how to get it out. And the main block was that I'd never told my family. You know, how do you have that conversation with your family after so long? And so I went into shame conversation. Ever, you know like it doesn't really matter on time I don't think yeah and so I went into shame booth and it was amazing and I spoke my shame and it was such a sort of big relief to kind of just say it all out loud to this you know telephone box and that kind of set it in motion I suppose and then I came back and I was like you know talking with my PTSD therapist and I was like I think I want to tell my parents she's like okay and I was like, I don't know how. And then we started writing letters. So I wrote, you know, I think maybe four or five letters to my parents, just sort of, you know, modifying, changing it, looking mm. at how I wanted to say it and what I wanted to say. And then I was like, you know what, actually, I think I don't want to. Because I was terrified of them not having a reaction that mm. was on the right level. Like I didn't want it to be, I didn't want them to burst into tears, but I didn't want them to sort of be like, not bothered either. Yeah. You know, well, thanks for going. Sort of, You're not over that yet, yeah. Ben. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Imagine. Thanks yeah. for sharing. And, Cup of tea? <laughs> like, what? Well, actually, I mean, well, actually, it was quite, kind of quite like that. And so eventually what happened was I was speaking at the Club Soda sort of mindful drinking festival about sobriety and, and randomly my parents wanted to come and support me, which was really sweet. And then we went for lunch and my dad started talking about how amazing it was that people were owning their story and talking without shame and how proud Mm. he was of me and I was just like okay like this you know now or never Mm. kind of thing I just kind of blurted it out over lunch and it was a lot I just want to you know give that kind of gift to people that it was a lot lighter than I thought it was going to be you know there was a moment of kind of tears and a moment of holding hands and mm. and then it was a bit like okay well you know let's get a cup of tea and a piece of cake who wants cake you know <laughs> and that was kind of I it I always and, want cake <laughs> yeah and you know it's kind of been mentioned a couple of times and you know because it was because I was doing EMDR I was just like this is it's exhausting and mm. I kind of you know, I so I think that's the thing. I mean, shame diminishes when you share it. It just does. I think um, shame loves silence. Yeah, it 100% you know, That's does. how it thrives and that's where it lives. You know, it lives yeah. in the silent corners of self. And yeah. the moment that you can start to share that in any way, shape or form, that feels safe. And I think this is the yeah. one thing, right, is like making sure that, when you 
if and when you feel ready to share that it's contained in a safe space that whatever's going to be however it's going to be received it will be hopefully received with compassion and love and kindness yeah 100%. and in order for that environment to be created you need to trust the people that you're sharing with yeah and I think you know it's it's been a very very obviously it's been a 20-year process you know and mm. that that's very bespoke on every individual person you know and I couldn't have had this conversation this time last year I mm. couldn't there's no way I could have put me and the word rape in the same conversation. There's just no way. And, you know, it's the strange thing with everything that's happened in terms of talking about depression, in terms of all, you know, laying all my <laughs> shit out, is that every time I do, it's just like, oh, that's done now. You know, it, does, it doesn't hold as much weight anymore, you know. And so it's like, okay, well, yeah, yeah. if someone wants to talk about that, I can talk about it. As long as the people around me are safe and have been informed, you know, and I just think it just doesn't have a hold on me anymore. Mm. It's part of my story. And what was really interesting with my dad was that he was like, because I was like, so that kind of, you know, explains my drinking and explains why I kind of was sort of lost, sort of, you know, it was difficult with the kids. and, And he was like, well, it's part of it. But you were also on your own, Mandy, in a you know in another country, and you had two young kids, and you had a, jo- a stressful job. So, you know that's a big part of it too. You know, mm. and it's like we hold on to these things that are shame based or are surrounded in shame, and they become these massive, massive kind of rocks in our stomach. And mm. then when you actually take them out and look at them, you go, "Oh, all right, well that's that's just one thing." Mm. And it's just part of my story. It's not everything. It's not me. It's part of me. Yeah. But it's not everything, you know. I'm really And you can forgive of... yourself. Oh. Time. I'm very conscious of time because yeah. I'm loving this. I'm really loving this. But also I have to leave soon because I'm doing a gong bath <laughs> tonight. But there's a few things that I really want to cover off before, okay. before we go. So... What order should we do this in? I guess the first thing, obviously, what do you wish you'd known (laughs) about shame that you didn't know before that you do know now? That it's just a story you're telling yourself and it's not fact. Oh my God, I just had had what Oprah would be like, an aha moment. (laughs) So true. And when we can move out of that victim mentality as well and like reclaim Mm. our power over a situation, I think that is really an incredible healing space to be in. Yeah. So the second thing is if people are listening to this and, you know, I guess if they've clicked on things I wish I'd known about shame, they're interested in the subject for one reason Mm. or another. I mean, what kind of tips have you got for working through shame? I mean, it's such a muddy... That's how I always feel like when I start doing shame work with myself, it feels like muddy and, you know, there's never clarity around exactly what it is, where it starts, you know, what it's linked to and there's a lot of unpacking to do. So I think it would be really useful to know, like, what would be your kind of top tips of, like, how you've been working through your shame and what's worked best for you? Yeah, I guess there's part of perfectionism in it you know, getting rid of this idea of that that we should be perfect or things should be normal, you know, just to, to allow yourself to be perfectly un, unperfect. And 
you know, do work around self-compassion. The reign of self-compassion with Tara Brach is amazing sort of guided meditation. Just every time you feel yourself ruminating or kind of getting stuck in the past, just kind of tell yourself like the past is the past. Mm. You know, the past, I can't do anything about the past, but I'm here now and I have a future and Mm. just kind of keep future thinking. I guess stay in your own lane, you know, don't let other people's opinions or other people's viewpoints bring shame. You know, you are your own person with your own experiences. Yeah, and I guess sort of flexible thinking, you know, I think when you're in a shame spiral, you kind of get really sort of stuck in, in fixing things or controlling things or... And I guess it's like that that way of just going, taking a step out and going, okay, how else can I look at this or what else can I do about it? And yeah, just working on forgiving yourself. I mean, you know, we all make mistakes. There's probably a huge story around why or what happened. And there's just no point getting stuck there. There's You can't do anything about That's it. it. You just can't. And and so, you know, just embrace yourself and your own, you know, story. And, and it's made you who you are. And, yeah, and, you know, don't drink. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, you know, just try and avoid things that disconnect more from yeah. yourself, really, and in kind of, yeah. I mean, we've talked about meditation before. It's something that's difficult for me because of kind of PTSD trauma mm. stuff mm. but certainly I I like to listen to guided meditation with good teachers that talk yeah. about subjects like shame and things like that I really love oh I've forgotten her name that does come back to me oh I can't remember oh, I have to look on my phone quickly but um <laughs> check it out yeah Sarah Blondin okay Sarah Blondin she's really amazing she did sort of a podcast series and they're all kind of guided meditations and just sort of sitting with your own emotions so things like that have really helped me just to kind of let go Um, yeah it's interesting because I do I wrote a course meditation made simple and part of that is all about emotional well-being in meditation because Mm. you know I just briefly did a Vipassana which is like a 10-day silent meditation retreat with unresolved trauma (laughs) Hmm. which now I know to have been a really stupid thing but and again that I think that built a bit of shame in me as well of like why can't I let this go and what's Mm -hmm. wrong with me because you know there was a real thing around like me doing the practice wrong like if I couldn't let that go and if I couldn't but what I didn't realize was I was basically just re-traumatizing myself like for Mm. 10 days it was completely ridiculous so it's I think for a lot of people you know meditation for me has been literally one of the most integral parts of healing but like you say you know using guided meditation or maybe chanting or something where it's not necessarily like visual or and knowing that it's okay that if you are doing a meditation and you get a flashback or a memory comes up or something an emotion feels overwhelming and you know for whatever reason it just feels too much it's okay to stop meditating 
Like you mm. don't have to stay in the meditation. You can come out of it. You can always go back into it at any point, whether that's, you know, five minutes later or two years later or whatever. It doesn't matter. Like you don't have to stay in that space. Yeah. And, and I think that's what I meant by flexible thinking. You know, it's yeah. just like, I think for a long time, I didn't have the confidence in myself to make decisions like that. You know, I went to a, my one and only gong bath and it was, a guy that was you know doing it and I lay down and we were supposed to put like you know an eye mask on and I was like my heart was going and I was like I'm gonna get a panic attack like I Mm. can't do this and then it was just like and I knew that sort of me sort of six years ago would have just (laughs) laid there and just done it anyway Mm. but I was just like you know I'm not doing this and I just got up and left and Mm. it's that thing of like knowing myself enough to just be like you know what like no not yeah I mean, I put a warning on my thing for Gong as well about PTSD because I think it can be. I mean, I trust sound so much. It can be one, I think it's one of the most incredible healing tools in existence. But similarly to all healing tools in the right environment. Mm. And I think if you've got PTSD or something like that, maybe going to see a practitioner one-to-one so that you've got more control over the environment, maybe playing the Gong yourself for a bit. Mm. And, you know, if you've got a practitioner that would allow you to do that so that you can get used to the kind of sounds that it makes and and where the boundary is with that in terms of your level of of how loud you want that to be played and come to an agreement, you know, and then I think that could work in an incredibly healing way. But I also think, you know, (laughs) Gong can literally just be like, hey, look at this. And you're like, I don't want to see. I don't want to see it. Because it's just really clever at showing you what needs to be healed in the body. It's super Mm. effective at that. But we're not always ready to, and similarly with meditation, I think, well, I mean, it is a type of meditation, right? It's a sound meditation. And I think sometimes we're just not ready. And, And I love what you said about be compassionate to yourself. I guess one thing I really want to touch on just very, very quickly before I'm going to have to run. I mean, I could literally talk to you. (laughs) I mean, I think we've had these conversations way longer than this, haven't we, on the phone before. You talk a lot about self-forgiveness. And Mm. I think that is obviously really gravely important when you're trying to heal anything. What about forgiveness of, of other people? How do you feel around that? Is anything forgivable or are some things unforgivable? Oh, wow. I wasn't expecting that question. (laughs) (laughs) You got me there. One drop. (laughs) I had a nice quote about forgiving myself. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, you don't need to answer if it's... No, I mean, it's it's something that I have thought about for sure, you know, and and I know the theory behind it. Like, I think it can be incredibly healing, I'm not there yet and I'm not sure I ever will be but I can I can definitely see that if you know that that could be something I mean I couldn't find that I couldn't find them if I wanted to you know I don't know I don't know them so Mm. it's not really an option that I can I can probably go around the area but I just wouldn't put myself in that position but I can see I mean (laughs) bring it to like I watched Queer Eye the other day you know and there was this guy that met this guy that shot him and it was amazing you know and the, the healing that went between them two as individuals and understanding why he did what he did and you know I get it in a in a theoretical sense but I'm so detached from that that I couldn't 
I mean, I've, I've forgiven my ex-boyfriend. I've, you know, I've forgiven various ex-boyfriends. You know, I had one of my ex-boyfriends went to prison. And unfortunately, he died recently of a heart attack. But he was amazing because when he came out of prison, he made a point of forgiving, to, of, of apologising to everyone, mm. you know, that he'd ever done wrong by. And one of those people was me. And, you know, and I forgave him. And I didn't want to at the beginning. I was just like, you mm. know like I don't trust you and I don't believe that you've changed etc but you know he proved that to me and I'm so grateful because we had you know a brilliant sort of last year of friendship again you know before he passed away so I do believe in it I certainly do mm. yeah I guess it's the same as shame in that sense of like there's many layers to it yeah you know as we grow in terms of our our I can, you know, how, how I feel about spirituality is that it's just more of a connection to self and coming back to the fact that we are all connected and mm. everything that happens is a reflection of self in one way or another. So like if you're unable to forgive others, maybe there's parts of self that aren't forgiven yet as well. I don't know. But I also completely hear you in terms of, you know, that is yeah. a long, a long <laughs> healing journey of being able to you know realistically look at certain things that happen in the world you know anything any type of violence any type of violation any type of situation like that and just being able to go oh yeah you know but I think also around forgiveness it's not necessarily accepting the behavior right no not at all no no no. it's about letting go of the pain that's that's been caused but yeah no it's finding that line between not feeling like you're going, oh, it's cool. It wasn't a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) It only took 20 years of my life to start doing this shit, you know, and being able to be free of all the stuff that's interlinked and intertwined with that story. That's that, you know, that is trauma, right? Yeah, no, and it's certainly given me food for thought. I mean, yeah, I could, I was picturing a kind of queer eye, like, meet up you know and yeah. sitting down and chatting about it but that's certainly not going to happen yeah in terms of me letting go of it in terms of I don't know I'll have to work around the idea of what what is there to forgive I suppose in in a sense you know yeah and yeah so that can be one for like next year things I wish I knew about forgiveness now that <laughs> yeah A friend of mine shared this with me. So I just want—I thought it was really nice and quite appropriate. And it's Bernadette Russell. She's a she's a writer. She's got a couple of books about kindness and awe, which are Mm. really nice books. And uh, she shared this. She didn't write it, but she shared it today. And it said, "Forgive yourself for what you did when you were still living in survival mode." Wow. And I just think that's really, yeah. You know, we don't do things just because we're idiots. We do things because there's a story behind it. And mm-hmm. so you can forgive yourself at a deep level, knowing that, yeah, that there was a bigger story around it, you know? Mm. Beautiful. <laughs> what a beautiful way to end. Oh, thank you so much for your deep and brave, brave, brave honesty. I just know that this is going to, resonate and help so many people and I just feel that when I've been at my most vulnerable on other people's podcasts and my own and you know the amount of people that reach out and just go oh my god 
Mm. You know, when you said that, it just really, I realized and just had aha moments and it just, you know, this is what I've set the podcast up for is these conversations so that, you know, all the things that we wish we'd known can be, can be shared mm. far and wide and hopefully help relieve other people from suffering and help them to thrive. So yeah. thank you so, so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And as always, you can watch this on YouTube and or you can listen on all the kind of podcasty, outgoing places, Spotify, Apple, all those things, Podbean. There'll be links as always to all the different elements so you'll know where to find Mandy of Sober. And I highly recommend joining her community, especially if you're looking at sobriety as part of your healing path. And I will be back next week with someone else. So thank you so much for listening. And thank you for joining me, Mandy. No pleasure. Thank you. Take care, guys. See you next week. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more about my work through one-to-one sessions, corporate well-being, or even coming and joining me on my yoga and sound healing retreats in Morocco, then please check out my website, www.com welfordwellbeing.com and remember you can always follow me on social media at Welford Wellbeing over on Instagram and Facebook and like, subscribe and share on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and YouTube.